What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's never too late? You ever wondered what that meant? Have you ever wondered how that might play into you and your story? Well, in today's episode, you will never think about it's never too late the same way again. Welcome to episode 150 of the Lynch Leader podcast, where we get to sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you. And today, we get to dive into a story I have watched from afar, but today, we get to sit down and pull up a chair, sit in the dugout with Jim the Rookie Morris, and I can't wait for you to meet Jim. It's going to be so, so fun. Well, Every episode, I always ask, uh, man, if you if you ever get a chance, push pause, leave a rating and review. And every time you do it, number one, it means the world to me. But secondly, it allows others to find their way to us. And this was just left on iTunes, and I thought it was so great because of of the topic we're going to spend so much time in today, the topic of baseball. This is the best podcast out there, inspiring. Mike has had some of the best leaders from all walks of life, athletes, authors, pastors, TV stars, and everyday people. His passion's unmatched. The questions are incredibly insightful and from the heart. I look forward to every episode he does. Keep up the great work, Mike, from Rich Sparks. Rich, thank you so much. Rich is a... uh, MLB baseball scout, been in the scouting industry for years, and we've connected through our Bible study that I lead on Mondays. Rich, it means the world that you took time to uh, leave that, and man, thanks so much. And I thought it was ironic with today's topic of it's never too late with Jim the Rookie Morris. Thanks so much, Rich. You may have seen the movie The Rookie. High school baseball coach challenged by his team to go and try out when they discovered he could throw really, really hard. And at the age of 35, after some crazy events and he had already retired early in his career, he finds himself on the mound pitching for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at that time. The Rookie, the movie, went on to win the SB Best Sports Movie in 2002. And for my family, it's one of the all-time great sports movies. But there is so much more to Jim Morris than just pitching on a major league mound. His most recent book, Dream Makers, really sort of picks up where that movie left off and the story of his life, the story of what he's been through, the struggle with pain and addiction. And I'm telling you, this episode is so, so on point. So I don't know where you are today, 
But this is one I think you're going to really enjoy. And if you're a baseball guy or you have friends that are in the game of baseball or love baseball, little kids playing, this is a great one to share with them. So I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Jim Morris. Well, Jim, this is so exciting for me to have you on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. Thanks so much for joining me. Yes, sir, Pastor Mike. Well, I feel like I feel like I know you way better than you know me because I sat in a movie theater. Your your movie, The Rookie, is a top five favorite baseball flick of mine. Take me back to Jim Morris growing up. Tell me about where you thought your aspirations were going to take you, and and then we'll trace back your journey a little bit. Absolutely. Okay, Pastor Mike, this is convoluted, so I'll try to get to it. Um, Born with asthma. Within 24 hours, I had pneumonia. Hmm. The doctors told my mom he will never, ever play on grass or dirt. It won't happen. And we all know that's not true now. And, but I had a father who was in the military and everywhere we traveled, he's got a child in the back seat with life-threatening asthma and he smokes with the windows up the whole way. Oh gosh! And, um, you know, the movie showed Brian Cox did a great job, but that showed the G rated version of my father's and my relationship. It was way worse. It was physically and verbally abusive. I never knew where the fist was going to come from or the ring. He wore this big Ruby ring on his hand and he'd turn it around. If I saw him turn it around, I knew something was coming. Mm-hmm. But if I missed that, it would come out of nowhere. Uh, he, the person who's supposed to love you on this earth and give you guidance and push you towards your dreams was actually the person who tried to tear everything down for me. And I, th- I think the worst thing he ever said to me, because the bruises go away, it's the words that stick with us humans, right? And so he's holding my little brother in his arms one day. I think I'm six. And as my mom walks out of earshot, he looks down at me, he goes, this is the one we wanted. Mm. We never wanted you. And when you're a kid, that just, that's devastating because this person who's supposed to cheer you on is actually the person who's tearing you down the worst. Mm. And so that's what I grew up with. And, and so for 15 years, uh, the beatings, the cursing, I had a dog my German shepherd, Nick, would sit on the end of my bed. And my father came in one night, sometime after midnight, and my dog woke me up growling. And I didn't know my dad had been drinking. And he came in, he was coming into my room. And my dog, Nick, he took him down the stairs by his throat. And so I have no idea what he was going to do, but dogs are pretty perceptive. And that day, my dog disappeared. And it was just instance after instance of, of ugliness. The one place I could be the kid I was supposed to be was on a ball field. You know, whether it was football, basketball, baseball, running track, I did that to stay out of the house, one. But two, if only for a few hours at a time, I had a team full of friends. I never had to say anything because my yeah. father's favorite saying to me is children are to be seen and not heard. And so I didn't talk ever. The fact that God goes, hey, you're going to go speak to people all over the world now. I was like, no, I'm not. He goes, mm-hmm. oh, yes, you are. And the fact that I love it is amazing to me because and when I leave the stage, my wife takes over. 
and she's talking to the crowd and I'll talk to him and I'll sign autographs and take pictures. But she's the extroverted person with me off the stage. When I'm on the stage, for some reason, God goes, I'm going to plug you in now. And I just take off. Mm-hmm. And, but it was a lot of overcoming that. And every time someone would tear me down, including my father, I look back now at that little kid and I see God, God's fingerprints all over everything that happened to me. And something bad would happen, and then he would bring something good out of it. And I think we lose a concept of that a lot of times, and we expect everything to be easy. This life is not easy. And you got to surround yourself with the very best people you know. And sometimes your circles have to close down, and then you have those really tight people around you for protection. You protect them, they protect you, and we move onward and upward. There are lots of people who want to see a lot of things destroyed, and I don't understand that, but they want to tear everything down. My father was that person for me in childhood, and so that made me pretty resilient and pretty tough early on. But everywhere we had moved, we lived in in California, right? And so in the early 70s, I'm watching Vita Blue pitch, and I'm like, I want to pitch like Vita Blue. And and I did that one time, and I hit a guy, and I went, oh, I'm not Vita Blue. I'm Jim (laughs) Morris. And, and then we moved to Connecticut, right? And I love baseball. Boston Red Sox are my favorite team. If you want to ask me that a, a little bit later about what that is, it's so important to me. That's awesome. But I watched Louis Tiant pitch, and I thought, I want to pitch like Louis Tiant. And I threw the ball halfway up the backstop, and I went, you are not Louis Tiant. That's right. And you just learn by example. But I love baseball because I love watching people like Fred Lynn and Griffey Jr. when he came into the league. And these guys having fun, running into walls and diving and throwing people out and having fun smiling while they're doing it. Because basically, at the end of the day, you're getting paid a whole lot of money to play a game. Mm. And we need to keep that in perspective. But I fell in love with baseball early. I loved all sports, but baseball was my love. Because in between those lines, I could tune my father out. Mm. And he wouldn't come to cheer me on. He came to tear me down. You're not kicking your leg up high enough. You're not following through. You're dropping your elbow. And he's screaming this stuff. And everybody on the field knows who it is. And so you got one philosophy running through your head. And you're trying to do what you know is right. And then you hear someone screaming at you who, if you don't do what they say, it's going to be trouble when you get home. Mm. And so I was always out trying to outdo him by outdoing myself. And that just didn't work very well. You know, I, I, such a great point. And I want to jump off that real quick. We've got a lot of parents watching and listening. We've got a lot of coaches. What is, what's a lesson you learned in those early childhood years and you, even in your high school years is a word that you could say to parents of players or coaches of players about how big their influence is in those young men's and young ladies' lives that are out on that athletic field. What's an encouragement you could give, especially, and I'll, I will take it the direct towards parents about what you would say from your experience, they could do best for their children. I'm going to try to say this as nicely as I possibly can, because I am a parent, but parents need to say positive things to their kids who are in sports. And like, a few years ago, I worked with this kid in Kerrville, Texas, who went to AM and now he's with Kansas City. And 
my deal for coaching him was I told the parents, the coach is the coach. His philosophy rules. And I'm coaching your kid and you're paying me to do that. The kid was so good. I pretty, I pretty much didn't take any pay at all. I was just yeah. like, you know what? And I said, but what I want to hear from you is repeating what the coach says. Mm. And if we do that, then the kid has one philosophy running through his head. That's right. And not three or four different philosophies. And he looks confused on the mound. The ball's going everywhere. Or he's dropping his elbow at the plate while he's trying to lift the other elbow. And he's trying to keep his weight back and, and shift into hitting position. If you've got too many things running through your head, instead of concentrating on what it is you're trying to accomplish, we're not going to accomplish it. On the flip side of that, with coaches, I would say, first and foremost, high school coaches, you may be the only father figure these kids have. Mm. And we need to stand up to that. And early on, my father was the first one, yell, scream, curse, hit, all this ugly stuff all the time. And then I played football in high school in Texas for a coach who was pretty much the same way. And so by the time I got into coaching, I thought, I'm not going to talk down to anybody. I'm not going to scream and curse and yell because for me, when I go back in time, that's the thing. It went in one ear and out the other. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to talk to them like I do my speeches. I'm not talking down to anybody. I'm having a conversation with. And so they know you're listening and you're li and they're listening to you. And so that communication is so big. And I also, for coaches, my grandfather had this saying, don't ever ask anybody to get dirty unless you're already dirty yourself. Mm. And so if you're going to ask somebody to do something really hard, you better have just come from doing it. That's good. And your baseball career, the first half of your baseball career ended at the age of 24. Did you ever dream at that point when, when your career ended, did you know, um, man, this is, this is it. Or did you have in the back of your mind, yeah, I'll make a comeback one day. What was going through your mind when you stepped out of baseball at 24? I played college football for two years. I led the country in punting and touchbacks on kickoffs and all the teams were going to draft me and I didn't get drafted. And that's a different story, but they said, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can be 28. George Blanda was like 150 and you can go out there and keep kicking. I mean, I had five, three hang time. Mm. And so I love doing that. And I was good at that, but I didn't do it because I love baseball one out of high school. And two, my high school coach told me I would never make it in baseball that I was a football player. Hmm. So then you have that 18 year old rebellion. And I'm like, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. You're not my coach anymore. Yep. And you know what? He was probably right, but Baseball being my first love that first time around, played college football for two years. At 28, our team doctor for Angelo State University did an orthoscopic surgery on me. And because he taught, he goes, why did you quit playing when you were so young? Why'd you walk away? And I said, because I've not thrown a ball in three years. If I roll over on my shoulder at night, I can't go back to sleep. That's how bad it hurts. He said, let me, let me go in orthoscopically. We'll fix it. You'll be good as new. He wakes me up halfway through the surgery and goes, um, you have a three and a half inch bone spur uh, growing up your humerus. It has a fork in it. One of those prongs inside your rotator cuff destroyed your cuff. Got to reshape the whole thing to make it fit. Oh. 
The other prong on that fork has destroyed your deltoid muscle and frayed it so badly, I've got to cut over 85% of the muscle out of your shoulder. You will never, ever pitch again. And I'm like, okay. And I'm graduating from college. It's time to start teaching and coaching. If, if I teach these kids how to do the opposite of what I did, they'll be pretty good. And that was my mindset. And little did I know that God would use a group of kids to push me back into a dream I thought was dead and gone. How, how did you enjoy coaching, making that transition from being a player and really being an overcoming player, overcoming so much adversity, to now you're coaching kids? What was that transition like for you to move from a player to a coach? And how much did you enjoy it? Other than being a parent and having that be the hardest job you'll ever love, coaching was number two for me. Mm. And I love seeing kids when either in the classroom or on the field, when you were teaching a concept and all of a sudden they get it and their eyes light up and it's just like a breath of fresh air and it helps fuel you on. And so when I could teach kids something that they didn't know that, Hey, this works easier than that. And I'm better at this than that. So why don't I do it this way? Because I'm better when they catch on to that, then we can be good mm. because my kids were not good when I got there and big, like, okay, but I kept telling them how good they were. And I kept showing them what they could do to improve. I'm doing drills with them, whether it's fielding, whether it's pitching, whether it's catching, whether it's hitting, you know, cause all pitchers can hit. So that's right. Of course, hit. of course. Yeah. And, but I'm in the mix with them and I would teach them a few concepts every day. Okay. And then we would go into a scrimmage and I would put those into play. And then they see that it works and now they want to do it. To me, that is, that is an incredible feeling yeah. because you're teaching something and they're getting it and they're doing it. When you go back and watch the movie, so you're, you're a part of that and you watch the movie of that season of your life, how close did they, how close were they able to hit your time as a coach and how, it all transpired that you were going to go and go to a major league tryout. Talk to me about that a little bit. I'll tell you, John Lee Hancock, our director was awesome. One of the smartest people I know. And he wanted to make sure everything was true to a point that people got the historical value too, like the nuns at the beginning of the movie. Right. And so he's great at that historical stuff, but Dennis and I had become good friends and so he wanted to make sure that I was happy with whatever he did. He said, if you see anything being filmed that you don't agree with, you tell me and it's out. Mm. And he was true to his word. So it's over 80% accurate. It's great wow. for Hollywood. That's incredible. And I've talked to other people who've had movies made about them and they're not really happy. I'm, ex I'm incredibly happy. And, you know, I, I, it's amazing how much like Dennis I look. And so... <laughs> But we just had fun together to the point to where we became such good friends. We would film and then we would go eat dinner and then I'd go watch him play in his band on 6th Street in Austin. And then we would get up and he would do makeup at 3 or 3.30 and then back out to the field an hour away and start over again. And I thought, man, you have a lot of energy. Mm. And so he fed off me and I fed off him. And I think we got a great product out of it. And Disney at that time was awesome. Yeah. And they put the weight of Disney behind it. And I actually think that was a positive thing. And it happened, the movie came out six months after 9-11. And I think people needed a great movie 
that they could share with their kids and their and their families and feel good and take a deep breath and go it's going to be okay we can get after it again that's right and it was such a great picture jim of of not just overcoming adversity, but hope at the end of adversity. So here you, you and your kids, you win. And I guess the bet was that you would go after they had seen you throw, that you would go to a major league tryout in the back of your mind. Were you thinking I do throw a lot harder and maybe there's a shot or are you just doing it to appease the kids? <laughs> I'm doing it to appease the kids. In That's the back correct. of my mind, I got the surgeon going, you'll never, ever pitch again. And so when the kids and I make the bet, you win a district championship, I'll find a tryout. I'm thinking you're old and fat. And the kids are like, no, we can't hit you. And I said, That's because you can't hit. <laughs> and then three That's a quick later, explanation. Yeah. And then three months later, I can't get these kids out. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're going to go impress somebody. And then they win. And I got to find a tryout. Not only did they win, but they came back from a deficit in the last inning which they weren't particularly strong at when I got to the school mm. and they came back and won. And I'm, and I'd forgotten about the bet. I'm like, they won, they won, we're going to playoffs. And I'm watching these kids looking out the door of the bus, celebrate an accomplishment that not even they thought they could accomplish. And for the first time in my life, my grandfather, Ernest had this saying to me and all of it came back. It's not about me. It's about we, and what can we do to make our situation better? When you have a team full of we, then you're going to go farther than I. Mm, powerful. That is powerful. So you go to the tryout, and it goes pretty well. In fact, <laughs> you you uh, your arm had been more than resurrected, and when you began to throw that day, and then got a call that a team wanted you what emotions race through your mind and heart at that point? I think I was still being a grown up at that point. And I was like, I've got a job in Fort Worth at a great big high school, the opportunity to work with more kids in a bigger environment. I'm successful at coaching. I'm good at coaching. I'm great in a classroom. The kids love me. This baseball thing I failed at every single time when I was supposed to be young and talented. And now that dream has come back and I don't want to take that chance anymore. I want to take the safe road and that's the road I'm good at. And I think that a lot of people wake up every day and go safe and steady. That's the easy way. But when you do that thing, that's hard that everybody else says is impossible. And you come through and you do it. Not only does it prove to you, but it proves to other people. We can overcome a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. Mm. You sign You've got an incredibly supportive wife who wants you to chase your dream. You sign, and then you begin, and, and I'm super familiar with minor league baseball. I play college baseball. Lots of my friends that went on live in that minor league world. And the minor league world, when you were playing in the minor league world now, are very different. And you begin to go town to town, stop to stop. Were there points in that journey before you made your major league debut that you thought, this is the craziest. I'm I'm crazy. I shouldn't be doing this. How much was that going through your brain during that point? Okay, two points, and you may want to cut part of this. I'm not married to that person anymore. Ah. Uh, and the movie, it's amazing to me because 50% of the people watch that movie and go, 
oh my God, she was awesome. She was so supportive. And exactly 50% of the other people go, she was horrible. And I'm like, well, but we're not married anymore. I've been married to Shauna for 20 years. And awesome. this is going to be our 20th anniversary coming up in November. But to have someone on your team who supports you in every single mm-hmm. thing you do, and yet is still strong enough to correct you when you step out. That's what we need. We don't need yeah. someone who's tearing us down. And what I did was I married at first the female version of my father, because I mm-hmm. thought if I couldn't fix him, maybe I can fix her. And she probably thought the same thing because yeah. her father was a uh, horrible. And she probably thought I can fix him, but I couldn't fix my dad. And we're both going into it the same way. We're not fixing anybody else except ourselves. Mm. And so I stepped into something I shouldn't have stepped into. So did she. We got great kids out of it. But did I want to quit along that route of playing minor league ball? Absolutely. The first night in double A in Zebulon, North Carolina, I walk into a, a field house where the kids look up and they see this old guy with a bag and they're like, hey, we got a new coach. <laughs> and I'm like, shut up. And, and so the first night I come in, 91, 92, the first thing I ever did, Mike, you're going to love this because you played baseball. What is the first thing you think I did before I ever threw a pitch? Mm. I'll give you a hint. There was a guy on first. Picked off? I balked. Did you balk? <laughs> he stutter stepped and my leg did the jimmies and I was like, oh. That's and fantastic. So, so I start laughing, right? And the catcher comes out. And he goes, what are you laughing about? He went to second. I'm like, because this is what I teach my kids not to do. That's exactly right. That's exactly Ray, right. Ray Searage is our pitching coach. And he comes out and he goes, what are you laughing about? We tell him he starts laughing. Bill Russell's our manager. He comes out and he starts laughing. Then the umpire starts laughing. I'm like, you know what? I gave everybody a good laugh. <laughs> back to business. Now back, yeah. back to business. That's fantastic. Pick the guy off at second, strike the guy out. 91, 92, they're like, he's not crazy. He's pretty good for an old guy. Second night in double A, two innings, five strikeouts, 98, 99 miles an hour. The next day I'm in triple A. It was in triple A, just like the movie pretty much portrays. It was even further than that. I wanted to quit three different times. But my prayer was that, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'm stubborn. Mm. you've pretty much got to hit me over the head with it. If you want me to stay, make it so I know. If you want me to go home, I'm fine with that too, but I need to know. And one night this person shows up for Louisville Slugger, Louisville. And my friend Bobby on the AAA team has a glove contract with Louisville. And so he talks to this guy and he talks him into giving me a glove. Well, that night, unbeknownst to me, somebody's in the stands taking my picture. That ends up in a newspaper on the front page. And the glove is like this with Louisville written across it. I get a glove contract. Money goes home, pays bills. I get to stay a little bit longer. The next month, there was a shoe contract. My legs kicked up high. That ends up in Sports Illustrated shoe contract. And I stay another month. The last time is exactly what happened in the movie. I was feeling down, distraught. I had a job waiting for me as a football coach, head baseball coach at Eastern Hills in Fort Worth. And I thought, man, two a day starts pretty quick and I got to get home. If this is not going to work out, let me know. Mm. And that night I got hit pretty hard. And so 
on my way back to my hotel, I stopped at a little league field. And I, I'm out the kind of left centerish. And I work my way over to the left because I see this kid and he's smiling, he's having a good time. And he's got about 55 pieces of bubble gum in his mouth. And in between innings, when he would come back out of the field, he and I would chat a little bit. And the smile on his face of getting to be a part of something bigger than himself was just, it made me want to stay. I got to get the answer to this. I do not want to wake up one day and go, what if? What if this would have worked the other way? What if God was trying to tell me it's going to be way tough before it gets better? I stayed. And all because of a little league kid who was having fun playing a game. What's different about your life if you had quit? If if you hadn't have gone to that little league field that night and you'd packed up your truck and you'd have headed out and became a football coach and a baseball coach, how would your life look different than it does today? I probably wouldn't know what it takes to get there. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't know the drive it takes. I wouldn't know, as my friend Roberto Hernandez said in the big leagues, he goes, it doesn't matter if you do great or you are horrible one night. He goes, you have to have a short memory in this game. That's right. He goes, you have to shake it off because you might be back in there tomorrow. And I think that taught me a lot of lessons for this part of my life and having surgeries and stuff. This is just paying for things that I've done in my past or having car wrecks or, or just being a boy and falling out of trees and all kinds of stuff. We have to have a short memory so that we get through it, we get over it, and then we move on. And we get stronger because of it, because we've been through those things. Mm. And if I don't take the kids up on that bet, if I don't follow through, if I go, you know what, that's silly. I'm not doing that. Number one, they don't believe in adults. And number two, I don't believe in myself. Mm. And I don't believe in the power that God has to make anything happen at any time. I don't believe that's true either until I stick it out. And I understand that to get to something fantastic, we're going to have to go through some dirt. Mm. You did stick it out. You made your major league debut in September of 99, pitched at 21 games over two seasons. As you look back and you reflect on that, what's your favorite part about that time that you made it up to what everybody in the business calls the show or the bigs? What's your what's your favorite part of getting to that ultimate spot that most players never make it to? Most never, if you go through baseballreference.com, most guys never, you know, they flame out somewhere in the minor leagues for talent or breaks or whatever it was. What's your what's your favorite part about making it up? And what's your best takeaway from that time you were there? I think that those guys are really, really good at one thing. And they're just like everybody else. Mm. That just so happens to be their talent and their talent happens to be on TV and in stadiums. And, you know, I could, I could easily bug out of that question and go, well, the first day I walked into the clubhouse and Wade Boggs, who had heard about the crazy science teacher for three months, who had just gotten his 3,000th hit, walks up and hugs me and goes, that is the best story I've ever heard. 
and then I would have to go. And then I did the the coaching fan thing and go, you're Wade Boggs. You like chicken. And he laughs at me and walks off. Roberto Hernandez, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco. Mm. Everybody treated me so incredibly well because they knew that I could do what I was there to do or I wouldn't be there. That's right. And so it didn't matter how young or old I was. What mattered was I was there and I was their teammate. That meant a lot to me. Now, the next thing that could be an easy answer was when I was uh, 10 years old, my all-star team in Connecticut went to watch the Red Sox play the Milwaukee Braves. Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron signed a ball for us. 25 years later, I'm pitching in Fenway. And all those thoughts of being that 10-year-old all-star come rushing back into my head. And that is why I love the Red Sox. That is why Hank Aaron is the number one idol of mine because of things that he had to go through that we'll never have any idea because that wouldn't happen to us. And the fact that he went out and did his job every single day at the top of his game, at the top of baseball, is a tribute to him and what he could stick through and put up with. That's so good. You know, Jim, you, you look back at your life and you have, you have, I think words that would describe your journey, overcomer, uh, adversity. You've, you've walked through overcoming things. You've walked through bouts of adversity. How has your faith played a role in you being an overcomer and you making it through adversity and even sticking in when you want to quit just in the game or in life, what would you say? I think that every time that I've put limits on myself, God has showed me that things can be limitless. Hmm. And because there are times when I don't give myself any credit, I'm like, I'm not good enough for that. Like speaking, I'm not good enough for that. And then you go out you find out hey this is this is pretty cool and people want to hear someone who's overcome who's resilient someone who beat the odds let's say well the odds for me were myself and I had to get the negative stuff out of my head and let God be in control of it or I'm not talking to you I'm not pitching a big league stadium and I'm not facing some of the best guys in the game at that time because I don't believe in it God has showed me that even when I have doubts and even when I stumble and when I fall, because we're human and we all do, he shows us how good good can be. Mm. That's really good. Now you're in a season of life. You've got a new book out called Dream Makers. And in that book, you talk about dream killers, because I, I agree with you. I think lying in the heart of every person who's walked the face of the earth, there's a dream inside them. Most of them just never watch that dream come true. What are some of the dream killers that you see most prevalent in the world that we live in today? Well, that's a loaded question. That's going to get us both banned from social media. <laughs> um, I just see a lot of negativity and yeah. everybody trying to find blame because everybody's a victim yep. and i don't agree with that i think the world is what you make it and nobody's going to get anything that's worthwhile unless you put in the work and the time it comes very very hard for 99.9 percent .9 of the people there are a few people in baseball let's go roger clemens or 
my favorite back in the day, Ron Guidry, and yeah. people like that, let's just stick with baseball, who it seemed to be easy for. But then, at, okay, here's the deal. At 35, I learned a lot more than I would have at 19. At yeah. 19, I would have taken it for granted, and I would have been a spoiled brat. But at 35, knowing what it took to get there, I now know that the people who make it easy are the people who put in the most work. That's right. What's next for you? What's next? What's next in your journey? What do you want to see while you're here on this earth that God's got you here? What, what's the impact you want to make? Well, every speech before I go out on stage, it's God, let me speak to the one person you need to hear this message mm. from tonight. And I'm good with that. If I can reach one person every time out and then like you go out and you reach one person every time that one turns into two, two turns into four. And I want to, I want to see people treat each other like Jesus treated people. Mm. Not with hate, not with division, not with separatism. I want to see people work together towards a common goal of making this a better place to live. Not just in this country, but everywhere. And we've got so much hate. What is hate fueled by? Money. Yep. And when you put money in the equation, everybody wants that piece of the pie. And that's not what this life is about. I know that some of the poorest people on this planet are some of the happiest. And some of the richest people are some of the most distraught. I don't get that. Why can't we just treat each other nice? Mm. And my grandfather had this saying, treat everybody like you would want your grandmother treated. Yep. And I think that's a great stepping stone right there. If we do that, my grandmother was our church secretary for 30 years. My grandfather in menswear store. But to watch those people who were my father's parents, by the way, was amazing to me because for 15 years, I heard things said and done that you promise never ever do when you walk down the aisle of a church. But for the last three years of high school, I live with my grandparents and I never heard a crossword said. I had never heard division. What I heard was people talking to each other like people and treating each other with respect and having each other's back every step of the way. That changed part of my core. And I needed that at that time. Now to say I haven't stumbled and fallen since then would be wrong. But because of those people in my lives for those times when I could have fallen off the rails, I think I'm a better person for that. And I think God gave me a glimpse of that to go, this is what marriage is really about. This is what being a team is really about. What are you going to do about this? And then being able to go out and replicate the best I can. You know, Sean, I've been married for almost 20 years in a few months, and we've raised five kids. And those kids are happy and healthy. Do they think like, like we do? No. But they think like they do, and that's fine. And all we can do is bring them up the best we can. Because that's all any of us can do. That's right. The people we touch. When life said none, there, there's a there's a maker, there's a creator that created Jim Morris. He knit him together. He gave you the gifts, the talents, the abilities that you have and you've used for him. When life's said and done, you know, the Bible says that David served his purpose in his generation and then he was done. What do you believe 
was the purpose that our creator and your savior, what do you believe was the purpose he created you for? That's a deep question, Pastor Mike. (laughs) I think my answer would be because I'm skeptical by nature would be for me to say something's impossible and then for God to turn around and go, nothing's impossible through me. And then having it happen. Let's face it, no way do I throw 88 the first time around, have 85% of my deltoid come out, come back 11 years later and throw 98 to 102. Everybody's asked me, what was your workout regimen? Uh, Tortillas and Dr. Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) And... He is impossible to live up to, but not impossible to strive for. Mm. Everybody who's seen the movie, and which are millions that have seen the movie, what's the one thing about Jim Marsh you wish they all knew? They see the movie, they see Dennis Quaid did such a great job in that role. But what's something about Jim Marsh you wish they all knew? Well, that's tough because I don't see myself the way other people do. Um, I mean, even Dennis was like, you are such a good person. I'm like, I have a hard time seeing that myself. And I think we all have that problem. I think someone who loves God, who wants to make the kingdom a better place, who wants to see a little bit of heaven on earth and who doesn't make mis- make excuses but is not afraid to make mistakes to improve. You know, when you meet people you've heard about and they exceed what you expected, it is such a blessing. And I can honestly say that Coach Morris, Jim Morris, exceeded that. And, man, what that gentleman has been through and what he has walked through trying to get to the big leagues – is nothing compared to the things he's had to walk through in life. And I'm telling you, his story is an inspiring one. And it really is a reminder. It's never too late when God's got a plan and he's got a story he wants to write. It's never too late to get started in that story. Thank you so much, Coach Jim Morris, for sharing with us. Man, that was so good. Well, we stay in the sports vein because you've got baseball rolling strong. You've got college basketball cranking up. And there has been a coach that I have been following on Twitter um, because of the incredible difference she's making. It has just blown up who she is. Her name is Coach Molly Miller at Grand Canyon University. She has a career record. I want you to get this of 219 and 32, the second highest winning percentage among active D1 women's basketball coaches. And when you hear her and when you hear her passion and you hear her heart, not only for the game of basketball and for leadership, but for the Lord, you'll learn a lot about why she's winning like she is. I can't wait for you to meet Coach Molly 
Miller. Well, once again, thanks for joining today. If you get a chance to leave a rating and review like we talked about Rich Sparks earlier, please do that. It does help other people find their way to us. Now, go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God has put you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.